From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. So far, California is avoiding the hospital bed shortage of New York City, as our state's partial lockdown seems to be keeping the pace of COVID-19 infections slower than predicted. We'll talk with our daily medical expert about where we stand, and we'll also look at early results from medications being used experimentally with coronavirus patients. And how are you navigating encounters with others when out in the world? From challenges in getting people to observe a six-foot buffer to differing expectations about using facial coverings. We'll hear about some of those interpersonal challenges. It's Air Talk right after NPR News on KPCC. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Coming up in our second hour, we'll find out if you celebrated Easter yesterday, what that was like, if you had a far more intimate gathering, if you used teleconferencing or FaceTiming as a way to connect up with other family members. <laughs> My wife and her extended family were on this huge Zoom teleconference. It was also celebrating the uh, second birthday of an of a uh, child uh, in the extended family and i went into the uh, office and asked where krista was having the teleconference it's just a sea of people on this screen all talking at once i just i said hi and left but it was it was amazing i don't know how they heard each other um but i'd like to hear from you second hour what your Easter was like in this era of physical distancing, what ways you were able to keep this as a spiritually meaningful week, the Holy Week. Um, If you had a Seder um, on the first night of Passover on Wednesday or celebrated Easter yesterday, we'll talk about that next hour. I also want to begin by wishing uh, the deepest sympathies of all of us at KPCC to our public radio colleagues at KCRW. Uh, They suffered the tremendous loss of a man who for years was a central part of KCRW's service to Southern California. Matt Holzman, a Long Beach native who had been dealing with cancer for a number of months, very serious diagnosis, uh, died over the weekend at the age of 56. Now, if you're a KCRW listener, you probably heard Matt on the document, which was a podcast that he hosted. He also was a, a noted producer. Um, he was the first producer on Press Play, Madeline Brand's program at KCRW, first producer of a KCRW local show, The Business, uh, first producer for that show. He created Matt's movies, a screening series as well for KCRW, uh, started the underwriting department there, a huge part of, of fundraising for for KCRW. And I just want to express again from all of us on the staff, you know, public radio is a very small world and tremendous care and respect that we have uh, from all the different people in the public radio system and particularly our local brethren uh, at KCRW, our deepest sympathies over your loss of Matt Holzman, who made such a tremendous contribution to Southern California's uh, public radio listening audience. And there's a beautiful remembrance 
from KCRW President Jennifer Farrow uh, that I would just direct you to on KCRW's website. Uh, Beautifully written, very personal uh, remembrance of Matt by Jennifer. Well, as we're doing each day on Air Talk, we're checking in on COVID-19, what we've learned over the course of the weekend. And again, as we've had for the past several days, at the same time, we look at escalating fatalities from the coronavirus and how tragic this is for the families and friends and all the people uh, whose communities are affected by these losses. We also have the positive that it appears when it comes to hospital admissions, there has been a plateauing in the epicenter nationally for COVID-19, New York City. We're also seeing at this point the projections for the spread of COVID-19 not keeping pace here in California. So some good news there as well. And joining us to take your calls and to talk about it from UCLA Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Epidemiology, Dr. Zhuo Feng Zheng. Dr. Zheng, thank you so much for being with us today on Air Talk. Thank you very much, uh, the matter, and uh, uh, thank you for our audience. Uh, let me begin, first of all, by asking you about um, what appears to be some positive news. Does it seem as though social distancing is bearing some significant fruit with lower-than-anticipated hospital admissions? Yes, I, I think so. I, you know, right now, with uh, all 50 states, are kind of in emergency situation and most of the states has in-house order. I, in last last three weeks, two to three weeks, I think we see really see a big positive uh, change. And uh, you can see that uh, the whole U.S. number, the instance le- uh, numbers are reducing and the deaths start to start to uh, start to re- uh, reduce and uh, this also happens in California I think California we actually acted much much earlier than New York City and we are in a very good situation right now and including Los Angeles yeah. we we have the uh, stay-at-home order through the middle of May here in California are you optimistic that at that point there can be a gradual um, reopening of of businesses and that um, particularly for people who are lower risk that they can get back to some degree of normalcy. Yeah, usually, uh, uh, usually this should take, you know, since you have an order, should take like uh, 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 four, uh, uh, six weeks. That means every two weeks is a latency. So six weeks by 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 mid of May they might be okay, but still I think uh, you know we in Los, in California we might be okay. However, you think about other states, they are still like uh, New York City, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut. They might have still have more cases. They might flew in to Los Angeles. So to be safe, I think uh, you know we need to in fact to inspect the situation. Uh, by that time, my guess is at least to end of May or beginning of June. We're talking with UCLA epidemiologist Dr. Uh, Zhuo Feng Zheng. Uh, Dr. Zheng with us to talk about the latest we're learning about COVID-19. 
We have an opportunity for you to ask questions at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Now, you've served as a World Health Organization consultant, um, and you've looked specifically at what's going on in China do you have any confidence in the numbers that China's reporting? Uh, there's a lot of skepticism uh, and belief that they're hiding the severity of COVID-19 there. That's a very good question and a very sensitive question. You know, if we look at China's data, China has a total of 82,000 cases and uh, 3,000 uh, deaths. Uh, if you look at the population, uh, U.S., you look at the U.S. Uh, instance and the uh, mortality, we are about 26, uh, 30, uh, 35 times compared with China. And so it is hard to, uh, hard to, to see, you know, since we saw the situation in Italy, we kind of wake up what is really the epidemic of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, if you look at China's picture, Everybody will think this is uh, a flu plus, right? Because they have a very uh, less patients. The fatality rate is about uh, 3%. And all of the other problems, uh, uh, except the uh, Hubei problems, uh, the fatality is about 1%. And the instance is not that high. That actually, you know, it's hard to say if they kind of uh, the data issue is definitely an issue because uh, uh, you can see from earlier time on, the, the numbers did not appear, uh, you know, correctly because you're always seeing the 2% increase on fatality rates of the, every day the 2%, 2.1, 2.2. And that actually people say this is probably kind of artificial because the numbers not uh, reflect the real number uh, well, there. It also seems that China's having um, a reinfection problem, isn't it? Yes. Uh, right now, you, if you look at, uh, you know, the China has been uh, under quarantine. The longest quarantine was uh, almost uh, 10 weeks, and the shortest might be six to eight weeks. And the issue is those people under quarantine, they're, they don't... they. If they don't get infected, they don't have uh, 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 the antibodies to against this disease. So right now, they all come back to work. Uh, and if there is any patients who can be infectious, that could potentially cause the outbreak or community infection. So this, this is a rare situation. I think that the second outbreak may be highly possible uh, in China right now. We're talking with Dr. Feng Zhang of UCLA, epidemiologist. He's professor at UCLA School of Medicine and associate dean for research as well. And he served as a consultant to the World Health Organization for National Non-Communicable Disease Prevention and Controls in China. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Is it your sense? that China is going to look to reopen its economy pretty soon? Because needless to say, with their huge manufacturing base, that's been just uh, demolished during this COVID-19 period. 
Yes, I think a Chinese government is kind of urgently want to reopen the uh, economy. The issue here is that, you know, right now China seems like they don't have the, 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 the COVID-19 is uh, kind of smooth, but all other countries are still in the, on the top of the uh, outbreak. So, so it's hard to say if they, be, they can be successful because if they reopen the factory, and the, who is going to take their, you know, the products right now because of air, uh, you know, airline all being brought and it's hard to, to recover because of other countries still suffer at this point. I want to talk with you about some of the drugs that are being used um, on an experimental basis in Brazil. There was a study of high dosage chloroquine, the anti-malarial drug, which they suspended because of the number of um, side effects with negative heart problems there. Um, questions I know about using lower do- dose hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. There's also remdesivir, which is being used, which um, I-, I can't recall if that's France where they're using it, but that's seen some um, anecdotally positive results. So your thoughts about uh, these these trials, which you know, kind of happening on the fly here. Yeah, I think there are several trials uh, ongoing. I think NIH has a one with 600 patients, uh, for the uh, 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 health system, they're, they're going to recruit the 3,000 cases. I think with, the, with use of the low dose might be much safer. You know, consider this is a drug being, being used to treat those other diseases. So the safety should not be, should, should not be a major concern if you use that at a lower do- dosage. So I think that you know, I'm kind of very, uh, I, I think this drug may have the hope, but well, you never know uh, until the end of this uh, trials. It should be, see the result very soon, I guess. Yeah, and and uh, so, but they are still using lower dosage. I, I saw, though, that I, I think it was Sweden is told hospitals don't use even the lower dose of chloroquine on patients. Do you think that that's justified to tell doctors that they shouldn't try that with patients who are seriously ill with the virus? You know, the issue is uh, for this drug, for this medication, and uh, according to my observation, it must be uh, used at the earlier stage when the patient is just start to have a symptoms, it would be has a better impact to prevent them to get into ICU. Uh, but if you use that in the later stage, might not be effective. And also, also you depend on how, how many days you are using. Uh, if you look at the uh, data from uh, Brazil, they actually used it for 10 days. Uh, you know, maybe uh, this is uh, too long to use that, that medication. So I think, uh, you know, for the doctors to try to use those medication because right now we don't have any medication right but to use some medication has a potential effect so it was worthwhile to try uh also i want to ask you about the bcg vaccination which is used for tuberculosis does that seem to have some sort of a protective effect against covid19 yes that's a very interesting question uh so this actually uh, based on the observation, if you look at China, you know, China number may not be, uh, may not be the choose, but 
China does have a very, very low the instance and mortality of COVID-19. Uh, but if you look at the countries surrounding China, the uh, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, they all, all have a very low instance and mortality. So what happens is those population, uh, they, you know, they have a national, national the vaccination, use the PCG. And so the, probably the PCG will be protective uh, of the uh, COVID-19 because uh, first, this is an antibody against uh, bacteria. However, they might, might boot up your immune system to against the COVID-19. Secondary, this is a vaccination for the tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is a long disease, so may also build up the local the protections for the for the for for the human being. So so they, I, I understand there are some clinical trials going on uh, in the medical uh, professionals trying to see if they. Uh, get vaccination if their chance of getting the COVID-19 infection will be reduced. But we have to wait to see. But right now, according to what our observation, this probably would be would be possible. However, if you look at data from from California and the uh, Asians don't have much protection, uh, and Asian infect is high uh, high than the the proportion they have at this point. So. It's hard to say. Yeah, and do we know what percentage of Americans get that uh, old BCG vaccination? Is it is it small here? Yeah, in the United States, we don't have a required uh, vaccination for for tuberculosis, so the proportion will be quite low, except for the people for the first generation uh, migrants from China, from Asian. And they might have uh, Asian countries. They might have the vaccination. So the, my guess, the proportion would be relatively small. Also, do you think that there could be a significant genetic factor here for people who are more likely to get uh, severe symptoms or be at risk of death from COVID nineteen? You know, it's very hard to say. But if you look at the data right now. A very high percentage of the uh, uh, African American actually they had a, uh, they have a high instance and high fatality of the uh, of the COVID nineteen. The issue is that you know this is I, my guess is a socioeconomic factor because uh, a lot of people has to work, has to be drivers, has to be deliver the mayors, has to do a lot of things. They could not really stay home like uh, most of people. So, so they got a very high chance to be infected. So I, I, my guess is uh, probably not genetic, but, you know, everything is genetically related. But we don't know at this point yet. It's worthwhile to have some research on that. Dr. Zhang, I want to thank you very much for spending your time with us today and answering our questions about COVID-19. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. 
from UCLA, Professor of Epidemiology and Associate Dean for Research, Dr. Zhuo Feng Zheng, joining us on AirTalk. Well, you might recall uh, that last week we had a very, very special opportunity to hear from longtime KPCC and AirTalk listener, singer, songwriter, film composer Randy Newman. And we'd asked him to say a few words for listeners about the importance of staying at home. And he actually wrote a song that we debuted on AirTalk last week. And so uh, that's, you know, very, very exciting to have that uh, opportunity to do that. Uh, Today, our friends at Sesame Street wanted to remind KPCC listeners to stay at home. We received messages from Oscar the Grouch and Grover. Hello, everybody. It is I, your cute and adorable pal Grover, safe at home, practicing self-care. And I do not mind sharing my tips with you. Number one, get some healthy exercise, like sit-ups. And after sit-ups, you've earned a nice sit-down, maybe with a good book. I am reading The Old Monster of the Sea. But anyway, take good care of yourself inside and out. Hey you, KPCC listeners, Oscar the Grouch here to tell you to stay home. I know, I know, you wish you could go out. You know what I like to do, though? Stay home. Yeah, alone. I don't care if you're alone or safe at home with someone else as long as you're not near me. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, have a rotten day. <laughs> 89.3 KPCC. We're in this together. We'd like to thank our friends at Sesame Street, because we know how difficult Oscar can be at times. If you want to play the messages again for your child, parents can call 626-831-9333. That's 626-831-9333 to play the messages on demand. They'll also be posted at laist.com, and you can also hear them here on 89.3 KPCC throughout the week. Thank you for Sesame Street. Wonderful to have you getting out the message to our younger listeners as well. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up, we'll talk about what your Easter was like. How did you celebrate the holiday when physical distancing was required? We're at 866 893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on 89.3-KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you had a wonderful weekend, and if it was part of your Holy Week that this has been a, a very positive time and uh, for people of faith. It's, of course, a very, very challenging period and an important one for people of faith, whether uh, for Southern California Jewish households that were celebrating and observing Passover with a Seder 
uh, middle of last week or Easter Sunday yesterday. I'd like to hear how you worshipped and also celebrated Easter dinner, uh, given the physical limitations that we have with social distancing. 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Uh, in our household yesterday, it was very, very small group. Kristen, Desmond, me, and my mother joined us, and we sat at extreme social distancing to make sure uh, that we kept my mother safe and that I stayed in my ongoing bubble. We did that as we enjoyed dinner together yesterday. And then uh, Kristen's extended family had a huge uh, Zoom uh, video gathering uh, with everybody on that. And I don't know, it seemed like there must have been close to two dozen people who were on that. How did your family do it? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. How did you worship yesterday? Of course, Easter and Christmas uh, for pastors uh, and priests, by far the biggest periods of the year for church attendance. So what uh, did you see with your congregations, and was it uh, still a moving experience to do services yesterday uh, via uh, teleconference? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. It's a chance for you to share your experience. I also wanted to mention another loss that we suffered here in Southern California, and this one on Good Friday. Diane Rodriguez, who'd been a guest with us several times on Air Talk, was a huge figure in Los Angeles theater. She mentored younger playwrights and actors. Uh, she herself, an actor, a playwright, director, producer. She advocated for the arts generally and for Los Angeles theater uh, for many, many years. Uh, she really came up as a member of El Teatro Campesino, um, the hugely influential theater company that came out of uh, Central California from the farm worker community and uh, touched on themes of such great importance uh, to people who were working agriculturally here in California. And then uh, in her work here in Los Angeles with Center Theater Group, uh, developing of plays, uh, working with playwrights, making sure that Latino voices uh, were heard, uh, especially Mexican-American voices here in Los Angeles. Uh, she died after a lengthy battle with cancer. But Diane Rodriguez, uh, just an extremely important figure in Los Angeles arts, really giving a voice to people of Los Angeles and making sure that those stories came to prominence. And we offer our condolences to her family members, to her friends, and to the large Los Angeles theater community that was so heavily influenced by Diane's work. She will absolutely be missed. Again, we're taking your calls about how this Holy Week has been for you, whether Easter Sunday, whether a Seder midweek, 866-893-KPCC, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Jennifer in Burbank, what was it like for you? 
Um, I was actually disappointed, Larry, because I noticed on my social media on Instagram where a lot of um, even my own family members that I was not aware of were getting together. And I noticed other people that I'm acquaintances with, too, um, gathered with their family members or some friends. So I'm a little disappointed to see that because it just means that the um, stay-at-home order might be now even longer for all we know, right? Yeah, yeah. So they were getting together. Were they um, honoring any sort of physical distancing or were they acting like it was a typical Easter? I want to say that they were acting like it was a typical Easter from what I can tell. Um, I decided not to say anything because I'm one of those that I'll tell you this. You shouldn't be doing that. So I just kept it to myself this time. But I was just more so disappointed to know that the stay-at-home order might continue now because of those actions. Yeah, and, and let's hope that that wasn't widespread. But do you think in your family, Jennifer, that just the thought of not being able to be in the same place with people was just was was too difficult for them? Or do you think that they, they think fears about the virus are overblown? Um, I honestly think that they're probably missing each other very much, though, because I'm missing them as well. Sure. I stayed at home anyway, though, because I know it's a sacrifice that must be made so that eventually I'm hopefully able to see all of them again. All right, Jennifer, I thank you so much and wish you a happy Easter as of yesterday. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. What has this Holy Week been like for you if you're a person of faith and you um, celebrated Easter yesterday? How was it changed this year versus last when it came to gathering with family, Easter dinner, services yesterday as well? And also extend that to Jewish Angelinos, your Seder experience as well, 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. And again, just want to remind you in case uh, you missed all or part of our wonderful Sesame Street public service announcement from our friends there, you can hear that uh, and play it for your kids by calling 626-831-9333, to hear a recording of that. It's also linked to at LAist. Sunny in Hollywood, what was your Easter like? Hi, um, I was in a virtual choir. Um, it was it was a fantastic way for us all to stay together. We had our church doors locked on Easter. No one could go to the campus. They had barriers up. So anyone who didn't know that we're supposed to be physically distancing um, was not able to enter the church. Everyone filmed, all the pastors filmed their segments of the service um, more than a week beforehand and filmed them individually. And the choir, there were 40 singers in the choir, eight instrumentalists. Um, wow. Our, our fabulous pipe organist um, filmed her, her magnificent organ. They have a beautiful pipe organ. Which church is it? Uh, Bel Air Presbyterian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a great organ. We've been through so much because we had the the Getty fire that filled the sanctuary with smoke. You know, when the, we couldn't, our off-ramp was... Yeah, and it's such a beautiful church, just architecturally. I love Bel Air Press. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, so unfortunate that you couldn't be there uh, inside the sanctuary for services. But how did the 40-person choir work? 
Well, we we have so many creative people, and every church has 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 people that they can tap into. It's like, raise your hand and say, what do you do when you're not in church on Sunday morning? What can you do to serve your church in, in other ways that we've never even thought of? So we have people who work in the movie industry, people who do all sorts of creative things. And so everyone just, you know, made suggestions to the pastor. Hey, how would we try this? Yeah. What if we try this? And we had one of the pastors did uh, had a beautiful Rembrandt painting, and she was all by herself, just by herself with this beautiful Rembrandt painting, and just showing people how the light, where the light is coming from. Wow. That reflects what God is saying through this painting. It was just, I mean, it was an art lesson in one section of the service, and then the the, the choir, we all had to sing our parts on this four-minute opening hymn. That, ah, yeah, and and were you singing that live? So so you're all singing simultaneously? Oh, no, we, we were not live. We were all in our homes. We had to submit. Uh, we had to sing our parts into our iPhones, record us, um, that make a video. Yeah, um, and, and then it was mixed? Well, we had our conductor, our fabulous conductor, Dan, um, conducted the the piece into into a camera and then sent us the video of him and the organist and so we had okay so you sang to the accompaniment that allowed it to be synced Sonny thank you so much for sharing that uh, what a great way Beryl Air Presbyterian to uh, be able to uh, observe uh, Easter yesterday and, and do it in a powerful way. Let's talk with Holly in Fullerton. I understand you're the rector at Emmanuel Episcopal Church? Yeah, that's right. And um, and I have to say, we've been online since um, around March 13th right away and started with morning and evening prayer on Facebook. And, um, and then on the 21st, I think around the 21st was our first Sunday, so we've had some practice being on Zoom and then live on Facebook over the last month or so. And um, and then during Holy Week, I just thought it was so important that we somehow stay connected during Holy Week. So we had Vespers um, in the evening, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of Holy Week. Uh, the Diocese, Episcopal Diocese of, of Los Angeles, had um, incredible resources for us to use. And um, and we had home service for the three days. And so we had this beautiful prayer service that I conducted uh, Thursday night. And we were just all in our homes with our bowl of water and our candles and just praying together, Zoom, and uh, through Zoom to Facebook and Friday night, I was able to put together a slideshow, and each of my readers then spoke up, and we did the Stations of the Cross, and I just exited out of the meeting. So there was no follow-up or conversation after Good Friday, mm-hmm. and I think it really um, it propelled people into a much uh, deeper reflection on what Good Friday is, the isolation of the um, first followers of Jesus, and 
the real, um, the feeling of death and loss and disappointment and abandonment that certainly we're all feeling during. Holly, preach it. Um, yeah, I, that, I, I totally get what you're saying about it making for an even more powerful Good Friday experience. And, um, in terms of participation, my grandfather always used to ask, how many did they have out? Um, what was the level of participation on Zoom? Um, through the week, uh, uh, Good Friday, we had about 35, and then probably 20 to 25 on Facebook. And then Easter Sunday, we had quite a bit more. And, um, and, and then, like your earlier caller who was saying, you know, I had seen all these amazing video clips on Facebook of people like putting music and instruments and voices together. And how do you do that? And, you know, by God's grace, I have some young, talented musicians for a congregation that is, you know, significantly older. And I told my musicians, look, this is what I want. And they made it happen. Oh, that's great. Work. And they work 20 to 30 hours. And, and you know, wow. with a group of people, we got the singers and the music and they hadn't had, we're a very, uh, our foundation is musical and we have contemporary music. And so it was really important. Yeah. You have to have that even if you're, if, even if you're video conferencing the service. Holly, thank you so much. The rector of Emmanuel Episcopal Church talking about um, the significance of you know, changing the way worship was conducted in this Holy Week and how, in many ways, even a more powerful experience with people not talking after the Good Friday service, but just being left with the message and the observance of that uh, very, very important day in Christianity. We're talking about Holy Week, how it was observed in this era of physical distancing. We'll be back in just 90 seconds on Air Talk. If you figured out a way to do an Easter egg hunt on Zoom, let me know. <laughs> We're talking about Easter yesterday, how people celebrated it, whether with your house of worship or in your home with family members. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpcc.org. Uh, let's talk next, excuse me, with Linda in Hermosa Beach. You're on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. Hi. Um, I'm so excited that you're giving everyone a chance to say what was a highlight of their Easter day. And for us here in Hermosa Beach, in our neighborhood, we have a uh, request by our city council at 8 o'clock every night to go outside in front of our homes and clap or make noise for uh, to honor our um, medical workers that are on the front lines. And last night was like an extravaganza, like the whole <laughs> neighborhood showed up and was out in front yelling and screaming and clapping. And we have a nurse on our street. We always call her our surrogate representative. And it was just such a joyful ending of the day and a special day. We've never done that on Easter. So um, that was the highlight for us. For that's Easter. that's wonderful. And so you think the fact it was Easter evening um, made even more participation than before? I think so. I that's think. great. 
And uh, and it was just a good feeling. Everybody was saying hi to each other and Happy Easter and, you know, just checking in. And um, it just felt so Oh, great. that's great. Linda, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, speaking of honoring uh, health care workers, the Pasadena Police and Fire Department one day last week um uh, inundated Huntington Hospital, which is our neighbor here at KPCC. Uh, They're just down the street and around the corner. And they showed up in front and blared their sirens and applauded. And it was a beautiful show of first responder support for all the healthcare professionals at Huntington Hospital. And I know this has happened at other Southern California healthcare campuses. But you could hear the sirens all over western Pasadena because of, um, I guess, the oscillation and, and how the sound worked. It was extraordinary, uh, the outpouring of support and a beautiful thing that Pasadena police and firefighters did to honor uh, their colleagues working at Huntington Hospital. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Mini Hat writes on the page, For Easter, we set up an impromptu Zoom meeting with various members of the family. We ended up with 13 family members enjoying two hours. The idea was people could come and go when they wanted. Food and drinks were mandatory. We tried to have the feeling of a typical family time. Even without the virus, it's an interesting way to visit with family members who may not be able to be in the same physical space. Good test to see how far you can actually interact in a virtual world. That's Minnie Hat writing on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Beth writes, we've been shopping for our next-door neighbors. They're a couple in their 70s. They had a Costco Easter dinner delivered to them and gave us enough for our own dinner. It was a very special thank you. Beth, that's beautiful. Uh, So generous of them. 866-893-KPECC. David in La Habra Heights, welcome. You're on Air Talk. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to share something that's a little different than Zoom, but it is getting uh, disparate uh, people together. My mother uh, always had Easter dinner at her house. Uh, She's 88. My dad's uh, 90. And uh, there were usually about 25 to 30 people, uh, family, and then extended uh, friends, uh, widows, widowers from their church. Anyway, this year she decided she still wanted to do the Easter dinner. And uh, she was going to put it in boxes and care packages. And we were the ones that uh, took it around to uh, my siblings and her uh, other assorted people. So it was kind of neat because she made uh, turkey. She had ham. She had the scallop potatoes and all the normal things that she would certainly (laughs) say at home. And uh, so we we spent, uh, you know, maybe it was... good that gas is cheap. It was a quarter of a tank of gas in four hours of our time. Wow. You deliver to a lot of households, and I'm impressed. Your mother's 88 years old and fed all those people. Yes. Well, you know, she really is very fit. Um, she's got this. We're in La Habra Heights. She's got an acre of avocado trees, and she's still up and down that hillside 
all day long. So. Oh, that's great. Well, wish our best to your mother. That's a beautiful story of how a family Easter was still able to be celebrated. That's David in La Habra Heights, 866-893-KPECC, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. One of our former AirTalk producers lives in La Habra Heights, and she and her husband actually have a little vineyard in their backyard. I love that agricultural area, and I, I have to try the wine that uh, that Jackie gave me that came from their backyard vineyard. Let's talk with B in Mount Washington, Los Angeles. B, how did you celebrate Easter yesterday? Well, like a lot of people, we did the Zoom meeting, too, but I think it's really funny. I just wanted to say real quick is that, um, so my father is 99, and we normally have a really big Easter brunch, and so we were all complaining and laughing and joking about what we didn't have because we didn't buy it in the grocery store. And my father kept saying, well, if you come over here, if you just come over here, you can come and get it. <laughs> Trying to tempt you all. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't quite, I mean, I think he didn't quite, he understood that the whole country's on lockdown, but not for that. Well, why don't you just come over? Yeah. Me about five times. I said, no, it's really fine. That's funny. Does he live independently or, or have assistance? Uh-huh. Uh, sorry? Does he live independently or have assistance at 99? Yeah, no, he has someone that comes in about three times a week, but he's pretty independent. Yeah, it sounds pretty independent to me. Uh, we should all be uh, so hale as, as your father be. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. How did you celebrate Easter yesterday, given the physical distancing limitations that uh, we were observing yesterday? I I think pretty much all of us. Uh, Cheeky T writes on the page, shout out to Father Rich Daniluk and music minister Trevor Thompson at Holy Name of Mary in San Dimas. Father Rich even did a virtual blessing of water and walked through the empty church blessing us. It was one of the most moving services I have ever not attended. That's Cheeky T writing on the Air Talk page. I love hearing about this. What has Holy Week been like for you in this time of physical distancing? We hear from listeners of Faith here on Air Talk back in just one minute. Coming up in just a few minutes on Air Talk, LA Unified School District Superintendent Austin Butner will be delivering his weekly address on the state of the schools in COVID-19 era. We'll find out what he has to say about the schedule for schools in Los Angeles. That's just a few minutes away here on 89.3 KPCC. Let's talk next with Renee in the Hollywood Hills. Renee, thank you so much. How did you celebrate Passover this past week? We celebrated at my grandson and his wife's house. They cooked all of the food for Passover at the house, and then um, Alexis, the wife, drove it around and delivered packages with all of the food, all of the trimmings, everything including the Haggadah that she had worked on, uh, to our houses, to those of us who lived in this area, about eight of us. And then a cousin joined in on Zoom who was in Switzerland, and a grandson, another grandson who lives and works in Alaska joined in. And we had an absolutely lovely Seder 
and it was just all of their food, their delivery, and it was just absolutely wonderful. Oh, that's great. Renee, thank you so much. I appreciate it. 866-893-KPECC. Is it Sony in the West San Fernando Valley? Hi, thank you. Uh, How are you, Larry? I'm doing well. So what was your Easter like yesterday? Um, We delivered lunch, uh, sandwich lunch bags and sanitizer bags to the homeless in the area. I work at a uh, food pantry as a volunteer, and that's how we spent it. Wow. And and so uh, how many places do you think you made deliveries? We probably hit one, two, along the railroad tracks and everything, but we served about 60. Oh, that's great. Is this something you do every Easter, or was this new because of COVID-19? This is new. I mean, we were just distributing on Saturdays when there was no COVID, and then now we're delivering, not delivering, but um, giving food six days a week, and then on Sundays is when we do our delivery to the homeless. And I assume they were they were very appreciative. Yes, and along with that, we, we work with other nonprofits, and they made sanitary kits with gloves and masks as well. So it's a dual fold. You know, we want to keep them safe, but we also want to keep them fed. All right, Sony, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful and great that you're able to do that. What a wonderful way to uh, celebrate Easter yesterday. Peter in Covina, I understand you're a deacon in your church. So what was it like for you yesterday? Well, um, we celebrated Easter Vigil, actually, uh, Saturday night, which is the largest, you know, the most meaningful celebration practically in our church year. And it was just strange to do it with a priest and two deacons to an empty church. I mean, it was really um, kind of unsettling. And then the same thing with Easter Masses on Sunday, priest and a deacon in an empty church. And so did you take part on the Saturday night service? Yes, yes. And and you 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 were I assume observing the physical distancing as a part of that. Yeah, that was difficult to do, um, and I must say we probably didn't always um, manage to um, navigate it that way because there were things that had to be done where we there was no way to do it standing six feet apart. But to the best we could, we did that. Yeah. And and did you uh, wear? Any kind of uh, face covering during it or feel like that would be intrusive to do that? Yeah, no, we did not wear face coverings, no. So this this was a very odd experience, clearly, for you. From a spiritual standpoint, um, did, did you feel like it was more or less powerful than your participation in a typical Mass? Well, in a strange way, it was more powerful because it was really, you know, symbolic of of the ending of Lent. All of this separation was very symbolic um, spiritually for me personally. And I know a lot of the parishioners that I've spoken to have said the same thing. It was was not what we wanted, but it was in many ways made Lent um, more meaningful. And uh, what's your church? Uh, it's uh, the Catholic Church, St. Louis de Marillac in Covina, California. All right. Hey, Peter, thank you very much for sharing that experience. 866-893-KPECC. 
the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can also tweet what your Easter Sunday was like or earlier in the week if you had a Seder that was um, convened under very different circumstances, of course, a chance for you to share that experience. Uh, Glenno writes on the page, I joined my recently converted niece's Seder via Zoom for a while, which was very sweet. She shared it with a few friends of hers without any connections to their own families, so it meant a lot to them. I, I could see where that would be an opportunity with Zoom where maybe you wouldn't have a chance to invite people who otherwise couldn't have been part of an Easter uh, Sunday dinner or a Passover Seder. And because of the ease of using Zoom, to be able to technologically connect with other people, that you're able to do it in a way that uh, extends uh, even the social connection that you would have with, with people in your life. Allison in Alhambra says... I sing together with a group of friends, and we've been using Facebook Go Live to sing together. We've been coordinating our feeds, layering our voices to get them to line up. And over the weekend, we had people across the country join our feed to sing along. Allison, I'm so impressed that um, even with the latency, the delay that that happens, that you're able to get everybody to be able to you know, sing at the same time and to have that kind of unison experience. That's terrific. You can share your comments on the AirTalk page at kpcc.org, uh, also on our Facebook page. You can share uh, messaging as well and let us know about your Easter experience. Coming up in this next hour of AirTalk, we'll hear from Austin Butner. Superintendent of the L.A. Unified School District. I know that parents and teachers, administrators and students all waiting to hear, is there any chance that uh, school is going to come back to campus uh, either at the end of this academic year or what about summer school? Is that even a possibility? Or are we looking more than likely uh, until the fall when school would be back in session in L.A. Unified? So... We'll find out about that momentarily, and we may end up interrupting uh, NPR News to bring the superintendent to you uh, momentarily so you hear that live. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC, and I want to thank you for your wonderful calls, for the comments, all the great participation. This important part of getting through the COVID-19 restrictions is talking amongst ourselves and sharing our experiences. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Parents, students, teachers, and administrators are anxiously awaiting what the future holds for the L.A. Unified School District. The nation's second-largest district, smaller districts, will ultimately consider what L.A. does as they plan the rest of their school year. Superintendent Austin Butner will shortly announce what's anticipated for the rest of this year. And then it's the week in politics with our political analysts. They'll be joining us to talk about the very latest uh, discord over COVID-19 as well as the response. Uh, We're going to take you now to Austin Butner 
L.A. Unified School Superintendent, who's going to be talking about the schedule for the year. This thanks to our media partner, NBC4. Studying music, and two who are in the last part of high school. My wife's studying for her master's. What we've learned so far is when all six of us are on the Internet, at the same time, it crashes. If my sons practice the guitar and drums at the same time, the rest of us can't work, and that our two dogs bark about 50% of the time I'm on a Zoom call. But we're making it work and are fortunate to be together in this time of crisis, to have a nice roof over our heads and to know where the next meal is coming from. That's not the case for many of the families we serve, and over the break, work continued to help those most in need. Los Angeles Unified has provided more than 7 million meals to children and families in need. The staggering size of this relief effort is a stark indicator about the growing need in the communities we serve. The impact of this crisis and the need for a safety net is seen in other ways as the stress and anxiety continue to mount. It was made very real for me late one evening last week when I received a message from a student having suicidal thoughts because of the pressure she was feeling about school and all of the chaos around her. The fast actions of a team from Los Angeles Unified got her to a hospital where she's receiving care. One can get lost in the numbers, the number of people filing jobless claims, a different figure of those unable to pay rent, or the various counts of ventilators. But each of these numbers represents a real person in need of help. Our mental health hotline is open and staffed with professional counselors from our schools. If you have questions, concerns, or are faced with more than you can handle, please call and they will help you. We've now raised more than $4.5 million in cash and donations for more than 8,000 people to support the relief efforts. Please text NEED to 76278 or visit LASTudentsMostInNeed.org if you're able to help. Volunteer at our food centers with the Red Cross, contribute money, or donate goods and services. Many individuals and businesses, large and small, are already part of this effort, but I'll highlight one in hopes others can find a way to help. In normal times, we work with Amazon in several areas. Procurement and cloud services, just to name a couple. Since the crisis started, they've jumped in to help. The mental health hotline I spoke of, we're able to launch it in just a few days because Amazon helped with cloud technologies and engineering support. The same collaborative approach is being used to strengthen Schoology, the knowledge sharing platform our educators use to provide lessons to students. Schoology was not built to handle 500,000 concurrent users, so we brought in Amazon to help increase its capabilities. Amazon is also helping us try to connect 100% of students online with a different way to deliver devices to students at home. And in the coming week, due in part to the generosity of Amazon, we'll be sending every high school student in all of our schools headphones they can use while working online to help eliminate distractions. We reached agreement late last week with the teachers union to provide the flexibility and support educators need to work in these extraordinary circumstances. More important than the words on six pages of paper are the outstanding efforts by so many educators who are going above and beyond to help students learn. It's been one month since we announced the closure of school facilities. When we made that decision, there were about 50 known cases of the virus in the Los Angeles area, and none had any connection to our school community. Since then, the number of cases has increased almost 200-fold. Health authorities know a good deal more about the virus than they did just weeks ago. It's more contagious than they initially thought, and it can be transmitted by individuals who show no symptoms. The path to reopening school facilities is not known at this time, despite any speculation you might hear. 
Social distancing and a flattening curve will help an overburdened healthcare system and may save lives. But there's still no clear picture about testing, treatments, or vaccines, which we need to know more about in order to create a plan to safely reopen schools. The facts and circumstances will continue to change, but we will not reopen school facilities until state and local health authorities tell us how it is safe and appropriate to do so. The remainder of the school year will be completed in the current remote fashion, and we will hold summer school in a similar manner. For high school seniors, it will mean a virtual graduation, at least for now. Francis Swavillo, the student representative on Los Angeles Unified's school board, has been leading a group of students at my request to come up with recommendations on how we appropriately celebrate what, for the class of 2020, has been a lifetime of hard work. We also want to recognize athletes, scholars, artists, and others who've accomplished many great things, and we'll need to celebrate the culminations and great work of others in all grades. Much work still needs to be done to help the class of 2020 get college acceptances confirmed, financial aid secured, and a summer plan completed to make sure they reach the next step in their journey. And for those students who are a few credits short, educators are working with our community college partners to make sure no student slips between the cracks and to help students with a bridge to the next chapter of their lives. We will not allow the closure of school facilities to close the doors of opportunity for young adults earning a high school diploma and starting college can provide for them. Grades will be provided for students for the remainder of the 2019-20 school year with two important caveats. Students can work to improve their grades, but we don't want to penalize those who may not have access to technology or may be experiencing difficulties at home. And we don't want students like the young woman I mentioned earlier to fear failure. At the same time, grades are an important way for teachers to set expectations and provide feedback to students and for students to measure their own progress. Like many issues at this time, we're trying to find a balance between helping students continue to learn and the sometimes harsh reality the crisis is bringing to the lives of so many of the students and families we serve. Summer school will be an opportunity for schools to try new approaches. Study after study tells us that breaks in learning are difficult for students and in this crisis, we need to find ways to change that pattern. We'll be offering four-week blocks of study for students at all levels. The focus will be on literacy, fluency in math, and critical thinking, and we're exploring new and creative ways to make the learning fun and interesting. Stay tuned, as there's more to come on this in the weeks ahead. The transition from a physical classroom to a virtual one is an enormous undertaking. There's no substitute for learning in a school setting, but it would be a mistake to try to simply replicate what happens in a classroom. There are practical limitations. No one should expect six hours a day of video calls to work. And there are some important shifts that happen when physical proximity or face-to-face -face connection is lost. Look at the struggle newspapers have had in the transition from print to online. They used to own the kitchen table. Like it or not, they had a captive audience. Now newspapers have to compete for attention on your computer or smartphone, and we've seen the consequences. A similar set of challenges will present themselves as public education makes the transition online. In a classroom, it's assumed a student is engaged in learning, though we know that's not always the case. But teachers who are present and in the moment can engage a student and create And we a just got an update. 
All right. That's uh, Austin Butner, Los Angeles School Superintendent. Thanks to NBC for our media partner uh, for offering the superintendent's remarks. We indicated that it'll be virtual instruction, online education, not just for the rest of the current spring semester, but also for the summer session as well. So the earliest uh, classes on campus could start would be for the fall semester of 2020. Graduations will be held remotely as well, the superintendent said. And for summer, they're looking at efforts to innovate for distance learning in the summer, four-week blocks that are going to be emphasizing some of the basics of um, education for Los Angeles. Again, that's LA Unified School Superintendent Austin Butner uh, sharing the schedule for the rest of the school year. I'd like to hear from you if you are a student in LA Unified or a parent of an LA Unified student, if you are a teacher within the district, your thoughts about what this means for the rest of the school year and what you've been experiencing with online learning so far. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. KPECC K-12 education reporter Kyle Stokes is with us. Uh, Kyle, not a surprise to hear that there'll be no resumption of on-campus classes this semester. Um, but what do you think this means for summer school with what he's talking about? Yeah, I was really interested to see uh, what Butner says is going to be a plan coming within the next you know, days and weeks about offering, you know, I, I guess I don't want to say it's expanded because he doesn't necessarily say it's expanded, but uh, he says summer school isn't going to just be available for, for students who, you know, like need to pick up credits in order to graduate, but for students at all levels. Um, the issue of summer learning loss is a sort of perennial problem in public education. Uh, and it's, you know, it's frankly, it's one of those things that uh, is is kind of a for me as a reporter, kind of an evergreen issue. We always get a number of emails every year about this this problem of summer learning loss. Um, and as reporters, we sort of think like this is always a problem and how do you sort of cover an age-old problem? Well, now there's this sort of new twist to the story being the coronavirus. And I think Austin Butner is, is uh, trying to say during this crisis, we need to take the opportunity to tackle uh, something that is a, a perennial problem for educators. Yeah, um, in saying that that the summer will be an opportunity for them to look at the delivery of education remotely and perhaps to uh, do some innovation around it, which obviously, you know, teachers on the fly have no opportunity to do that during this current spring semester. They're just trying to keep their head above water, water and figure out a way that their students can get the information they need by the end of the semester. I'd like to hear from you if you are a teacher in the L.A. Unified School District, if you're a student in the district, uh, if you're a parent, what you're seeing happening with distance learning now continuing through the summer school sessions, 866-893-KPECC. Uh, you can also comment on the AirTalk page at kpecc.org and let us know how you're experiencing this period where um, education has been turned upside down. Kyle, I, a few more questions about what LA Unified and other public districts are are going through with this. Um, 
What what about funding here? Because, you know, of course, it, average daily attendance is the formula by which schools get money from the states. And we heard, I think it was two weeks ago from the superintendent, uh, that there was a huge absenteeism problem with online classes because of some of the challenges that he enumerated today. Uh, how is the funding process going to work? Well, the, the, the fine grain of like student attendance, uh, student schools are going to be continued to be funded, funded at an at a level as though attendance were continuing as normal. And I believe that's part of the governor's executive order that that keeps schools uh, that, 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 you know, tra- allows schools to transition to remote learning. So schools are going to continue to receive funding as though things were operating as normal uh, for the for as long as that executive order is in effect, as long as this crisis lasts. But that I don't think that that means that schools are necessarily on firm financial footing. Uh, this morning, the teachers union held a briefing for members on Facebook Live, and uh, the the teachers union president in LAUSD, Alex Pluto Pearl, uh, issued a warning to his members that I think has uh, bearing on teachers and school systems all across the state, which is that we are definitely expecting state-level cuts in education funding because, uh, as we've heard the governor say, the the rainy day fund that the state has is going to be exhausted uh, already. The normal budget planning process has been pushed back as the state spends, you know, in record emergency amounts on this crisis, that this is all going to trickle down to schools. And of course, if the economy uh, continues on the track that it it is on right now, uh, that definitely has an an bearing on state revenues, which is where, uh, you know, schools are 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 the biggest expenditure of state government. Um, and, and so that is obviously a worrying sign uh, f- for schools funding. And and so, you know, you've got, you know, Superintendent Butner talking about purchasing laptops for every single one of the district's students and providing Internet access. But the, the line throughout all of this has been we have to spend the money. We'll figure out where it comes from later. Um, And I think the big X factor there is like, is the federal government going to continue with more stimulus funding? There's the possibility of stimulus funding for the district through the most recent from the CARES Act. Is there more money coming from the federal government? Um, I think there are huge questions about, excuse me, about funding stability. Yeah the district moving forward. We're talking with KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes. Uh, We're also opening our phone lines for students, teachers, parents to weigh in on what's happening with the public education experience right now. If you're a teacher, how are you adapting to be able to deal with the varying uh, degrees of preparation for home education that you're classroom students have. If you're a student, what is the experience like for you? 866-893-KPECC. One thing unclear to me, Kyle, and this may take further clarification from the district, but the superintendent saying that no student will get an F for spring classes. But if from the day that that on-campus classes ended, you have a student who hasn't checked in at all, hasn't gone online, essentially has just, um, you know, been been missing from education, um, and you don't have an F, does that mean that they're just going to get credit as though they actually took the class? Well, it's not, it's, it, I mean, I'm, I think it's possible that students who had an F uh, or were failing their classes 
as of the cutoff date that the district has set, they could still be in a position to fail their classes. The question is whether they would improve their grade. I think the 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 deal that the district and the union put together, the teachers union, spells out that students' grades will be held harmless from where they stood on uh, March 31st. I believe it's March 31st for secondary students and March 13th for elementary students. Forgive me if I've if I've flipped off those two dates, but okay. basically whatever date you had on that day, it, it it's not going to go down from there. Now it's possible that there were students who were failing their classes on those days, and so then what you would be doing during this time of distance learning is trying to improve those grades. Um, at the same time, I think that there's also you know sort of I've I've heard a little bit of of concern from teachers that this is you know in practical terms it's going to cause students who already have strong grades to just sort of check out because there's not going to be a reason for them to, uh, you know, no grade incentive for them to stay involved uh, with their with their classes. So I think that that's sort of a, a question that they have. But as the superintendent said, it, it's really hard for the district to sanction the idea that we're going to have students fail when there are so many concerns about access and equity um, around distance learning that the district is still working through. Kyle Stokes, KPCC reporter, joining us on AirTalk. Bernie Sanders has just formally endorsed Joe Biden for the presidency. Of course, last week, Bernie Sanders withdrew uh, by suspending his presidential campaign. Today, he issued his formal endorsement for Joe Biden. Of course, the question is going to be how enthusiastic will that be in the weeks and months ahead? And will be Bernie, Bernie Sanders be um, enthusiastically trying to uh, get his supporters uh, to support Joe Biden's candidacy? But at least today... Uh, he made his formal endorsement of Joe Biden. Let's talk with Kirk in Venice. Kirk, you're on Air Talk. What's your experience? You have uh, two children in LA Unified Schools. Uh, I do, Larry. Thanks. Uh, yes, I have uh, my daughter, my son are in third and fourth grade, and it's just funny the way that two two different kids responded to, you know, are responding to online learning. My daughter can be pretty productive and kind of get things done. Uh, you know, she does kind of. She picks up instruction, and my son is the opposite. Like, he just, he literally, he can't, he just can't respond to online learning at all. It's a complete waste of time. Yeah, and so that's got to be difficult um, when now that's the only way he's really getting the formal education. I mean, I'm sure you do a lot of things at, at home, but do you feel like you can backfill that since the online part isn't working for him? I mean, we do what we can. It, honestly, it's it's crazy. It's it's like a vacuum. You pour energy and information into these online calls, and it almost takes me and my wife standing over him to make sure that he's going to be on this call. And the amount that he learns in those calls varies literally inversely from the amount of effort we put in. Like the more we put in, the more he spins around in his chair. Now, I'm not just here to badmouth my son. No, no. Well, I think we, I think, I think it's very easy to be sympathetic to your son because it does require a, a, a a very different type of attention to do this. And for some kids, it's hard enough just to sit in a chair in a classroom and learn that way. It's true. It's very true. He, uh, I mean, he's never responded that well to it, but it's, it's funny because people call it, you know, how's, how's homeschooling going? How's homeschooling? And this is not homeschooling in any way. Homeschooling is a choice that people make. This is crisis management. one. Yeah. 
Yeah. Kirk, I'm so sympathetic to your son because, you know, I think we all get it. It's just such a different experience. And um, to learn in that way, sitting there, focusing on a screen, responding to it, it requires its own kind of a, of a skill set. And um, I understand why that would be so challenging. Kirk in Venice joining us on AirTalk. I also want to thank KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes for joining us. Coming up, we're going to talk about navigating the etiquette around COVID-19. So if you've been out in the public and maybe you didn't wear a mask and someone said something to you or you've been concerned because people haven't been observing the six-foot physical distancing and you felt you had to say something, maybe you didn't know whether you should or not, hopefully it hasn't escalated into nasty words, but how do you deal with etiquette around physical distancing and facial covering? 866 893 KPCC will be back in one minute. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. This is another chance for us to share our experiences out in the world. Have you had a tough time with some of the places that you go getting people to take seriously the need for minimum six-foot physical distancing? Uh, How have you navigated that if you needed to try and make that point to someone else? And what about facial coverings? Uh, Over the weekend, one of our producers, Lindsay, was out... um, uh, rollerblading and uh, out along the L.A. River and and someone, uh, you know, got in, got on her for not having a facial covering as she's out there. She thought because the distancing was sufficient and that there was no need to cover. Plus, kind of tough to rollerblade while you got your face covered uh, and breathe. Um, but I'm just curious what kind of experiences you have to show you the bravery of our senior producer on Air Talk, Fiona Ng. Just over a week ago, she walked into a Chinese restaurant without a face covering. Now, you can imagine, that didn't end well. <laughs> so, <laughs> the woman whose restaurant it is <laughs> confronted Fiona, and she was dressed down for, for coming in without a mask. What are you doing? What are you? And that was, of course, before the order came out. But uh, that's how brave Fiona is, that she went into the restaurant, a Chinese restaurant, without covering. And um, she, But she lived to tell about it. 866-893-KPECC. Fiona says, only the stern words of an elder can make me an honest mask wearer. 866-893-KPCC. Matt in Manhattan Beach. Uh, how have you navigated this? Yeah, it's been going pretty easy. You know, I got my gloves, I got my mask. That's all good and well. Um, but I feel like some vendors kind of are not getting the picture. Um, and, you know, I don't really actually blame so much the the, the workers as, a, you know, leadership comes from the top. For example... I'm picking up a sandwich the other day, and their credit card thing breaks down. Like, I don't know how that's even possible uh, right now. And considering, and she's not wearing gloves. And, you know, I pointed out to her, you really should be wearing gloves. You know, the thing yeah. is cash. I mean, the cash. I, yeah. Yeah. So did she take that well or not? Uh, she took it as well as she could. I don't think English was really her thing. So she did. Uh, wash her hands for 
like 0.5 seconds and then continued to handle the cash. I don't know. I got, I got out of there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully she wasn't also handling food as, as well. Um, Matt, I appreciate it. 866-893-KPECC. So how do you handle this when, you know, people can get very defensive or people can come on just stronger than needs to be because people are frightened. And of course, so, you know, one of the forms psychologically that can take is, is to harangue others or, or to be needlessly confrontational when a gentle reminder might work. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Marty in Hollywood, how's this played out for you? Well, I was in the post office just a few minutes ago uh, because I had to mail something certified, and I noticed a couple of people who were in front of me that weren't wearing any kind of facial protection. And it was rather disturbing. They were young, and that's fine. But when they were done, they went over to the exit door, and they were talking. And as I was exiting, I, I said, you know, you're inside a building, and we have a standing recommendation now from the city that when you're inside a building with other people, you should be wearing something over your face. And the male of the two said, yeah, I know, and just kind of didn't say anything else. And as much as I would like to have continued the conversation, I decided not to. But it was very disturbing that this person didn't seem to think it applied to them. Yeah. Yeah. Very inconsiderate. And Marty, there probably was no point in considering it, because if the person knew you could try and make a logical case for why when you're inside a building like that, it's important to wear some sort of facial covering. But um you know, I, like you, I, I doubt that would have borne any fruit. Marty in Hollywood, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. How have you dealt with uh, concerns or conflicts over people either not observing six-foot physical distancing or when they're inside wearing facial coverings, or when you're forced to be closer to people wearing a facial covering. 866-893-5722. Astrogoth writes on the page, please, please yell at these people who gather against the rules and say they are the exception. They aren't the exception. My neighbors had a family gathering yesterday. The parks are full of joggers and parents with kids on bikes. Go home. Stay there. All right, Astrogoth. Well, exercise is important, too. It's just you need to keep the physical distancing when you're out there doing stuff in the world. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Michael in Pasadena says, I work for the CDC information hotline. We're getting calls from people snitching on their bosses and their neighbors. It's supposed to be a medical information line, so I'm mostly redirecting people. But it's interesting to see where people's heads are at. That's Michael in Pasadena, 866-893-KPECC, or the AirTalk page. Isaac, in Anaheim, I understand you work at Home Depot and you work the door there. So, um, wow, that's a that's a tough job these days. What's it like for you? Yeah, you know, usually it's it's all right. But this time around over Easter Sunday, you know, we, we had a lot of testy people. And one lady in particular decided to break the rules, come out of the door that she's supposed to enter through. And when I tried to, you know, 
stop her. She let me know that I'm taking it too seriously and I'm not a security guard at a nightclub. <laughs> wow. So Isaac, what do what do you do? What what uh, have is your manager at Home Depot instructed? Oh, you know, it's kind of just a madhouse there. You know, we're that essential, non-essential store. So it's kind of just as long as we're making money, no one really cares. So, you know, I have a temper. I, I said a thing or two. She said a thing or two. And then I stopped manning the door for the day. Wow. Isaac, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. So why are you taking it so seriously is what she said. Well, because I work here and I come in touch with you know, thousands of people a day. And, and uh, as the customers come in uh, contact with each other as well. Uh, Isaac, I'm sorry to hear about that. Not surprised, but um, sympathetic to you. 866-893-KPECC or the Airtalk page, kpcc.org. Let's talk next uh, with John in Redondo Beach. John, what sort of encounters have you had? Well, um, I have been indoors mostly, but I went out the other day this weekend and uh, had a couple errands to run. And I was um, uh, yelled at for not having a mask. And um, what amazed me was it was a store full of people wearing masks, um, masks that I know personally. I'm a fourth-generation firefighter, medical first responder, uh, also have a wilderness first responder background. And these masks were not only inadequate if they had fully been covering their face, but they had them with their noses exposed. And what concerned me most about the idea of wearing masks and the way that people are treating them is this person literally got face-to-face with me as they passed me in the store less than a foot and a half away with this false sense of security that wearing masks now means ignore all common sense about distancing. So I asked the person to please keep their distance, and then they threatened me and said, you know, let's go outside. And it was just... Yeah. that there's a lot of fear going on and people are acting irrationally. And, and, and that's my fear about the masks, that yeah. people are having some sort of false sense. Of and my guess is, John, that anyone who would respond in a way like that, that's probably the way they are. COVID-19 probably didn't make them that way. But, you know, you would have been able to avoid someone like that typically in the past. Now... This comes out because if if there's someone who's not particularly considerate of someone else or they're ignorant about what the public health order is and they think you don't need to have distance if you got something on your face, then, you know, it, it, it exposes you in a way to someone who's like that in the world who otherwise you just wouldn't have had to deal with. That's unfortunate. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Carlos in Highland Park, I understand you drive a bus for Metro, so you're coming in contact with thousands. What are you seeing? Yes, uh, I'm a bus operator for Metro, and, uh, you know, I, I see that a lot of people are riding the bus without wearing masks, and policy is that we have to continue in service. We can't deny service even if they're not wearing a mask. And, I, you know, I would like uh, the buses to adhere to the same policy that everyone else is, all, this, all the markets and everybody is uh, following up on, because there's a lot of riders who are being uh, subjected to this, including myself as a driver, uh, people not wearing their masks. We have children sometimes on the buses. 
And uh, that policy should be implemented throughout, you know. There, there's no room for six foot because the benches are so close together. Sure. They're just crowded, you know. And now with 10% less buses out there, we're going to be even more crowded because there, there are people still riding the buses. And and you so w- what would make it better if if the buses still have to go? And I think arguably they do because you've got healthcare workers and people working at supermarkets and Target and Walmart. Not they need to get to work. So what what do you think would be? Is it mandating that everyone cover their faces? What do you want to see? Yes, I would like to see that policy implemented for buses at least that all of these people wear masks when they board the buses. It would help. I mean, as it is, like I said, we are already crowded uh, in some cases. Not in all cases. In some cases, the buses are very crowded. And and just by having people wear masks within the bus, you know, gives us a bit more safety from, from this virus, you know, a little more protection for, for all the people who are, you know, not infected, you know, and we don't know who is infected, you know. That's that's the, uh, the the feeling that I have anyway. Yeah, Carlos. Uh, first of all, thank you for driving um, because you are essential, and um, we all appreciate what you're doing. And um, I, you know, your concern when people aren't covering, uh, very very legitimate, and you're exposed to that air in the bus every day, as are other passengers from people who aren't covering. Carlos in Island Park, eight six six. 893 KPECC. John in East LA says, I had to get stern with one of my supervisors by telling him to stay six feet away from me. Things were tense. And my supervisor ended up lecturing me about the chances of contracting the virus. But I'd rather be safe than sorry. John, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for sharing your experience. Anthony in Beverly Hills says, Yesterday I had somebody disregard the six-foot guideline and encroach in my space at the bagel shop. I asked them to observe the limit, but they didn't care. I'm 60, this guy's 24, so I lost my temper. I pulled down my mask and coughed in his direction. Uh, Anthony, I'm sure that not your ideal response to that, but... um, People are feeling tense about it. And it's hard. You know, we deal with people's lack of consideration at other times, too. But in a case like this, where you feel like the stakes are particularly high, if you get this thing, particularly if you're older or if you have an underlying physical vulnerability, um, the stakes are high. And it's unfortunate there are some people who just, because it's too much trouble or they don't believe that it is as serious as it is, um, they act in, a, in such a cavalier way. Let's talk with Daniel, or I'm sorry, Danielle. My apologies. Danielle in Camarillo, good to have you with us. Thank you. Go right ahead. Yes, uh, last week I was in the 90, my local 99 cent store wearing a mask and gloves, but at the checkout stand, um, I was no more than two feet away from the checker. This young 20-something girl had nothing on, no protection, and I told her how shocked I was that she wasn't protecting herself and her customers. Anyway, she said, oh, only old people get sick. And I just couldn't believe it. So I asked to speak to the manager, and this young woman came up with no protection either and told me, well, the government hasn't told us we have to use protection. Uh, so I told her, well, ignorance is bliss, but this is death. Yeah. That I wouldn't be back in 99 cent store. Yeah, good for you. And that that makes sense. Um, 
I had thought that Ventura County, I don't know if that's where the store was, but I thought that there was a mandate for people in essential jobs who were interacting with the public to wear a facial covering. I thought I thought that they, uh, like Los Angeles, had implemented such rule. Maybe, I don't know if this was before that or not, or if they just didn't know about it. Um, Marion Camarillo as well says, I went to pick up food. I had a mask and gloves on. When I walked in, two guys were standing really close together. When one of them left, I approached the man who was still there and told him he wasn't respecting social distancing rules. He responded by saying, I don't believe in social distancing. And I replied, well, then you're an idiot. He went on to call me horrible and offensive expletives. Um, So clearly, uh, this is a challenging time and challenging circumstances. Uh, We'll do a future segment with successful diffusing of those situations. And hopefully, as time goes on, more people get with it and understand the risks and the need for taking protective measures. You're listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPECC, Southern California Public Radio. Coming up, it's politics. We have much to talk about, including some breaking news just a few minutes ago, back in 90 seconds. Pasadena just putting out clarification on the wearing of facial covering because there seems to be so much confusion about it. Uh, Lisa Dedarian, who's the city uh, spokesperson in Pasadena, says, if you're walking alone or in a family setting or jogging by yourself, you do not need to cover your face. We've seen several posts, people walking the dog without one. That's okay if you're practicing social distancing. We need to caution people not to wear masks if exercising heavily and exerting your breathing even more than usual because it could lead to serious or fatal consequences. I'm glad to see Pasadena clarifying that because you've, you've got some confusion about that with people believing that at all times when you're out of your house, you need to cover your face. And that's not good if you're you're working out and compromising your health by uh, cutting down your breathing at the same time. We now take a look at politics, and we have news that Bernie Sanders has taken the formal step of endorsing Joe Biden for the presidency. Um, uh, in that statement, uh, Sanders saying that we need to make sure we make Donald Trump a one-term president. With me to talk politics is Republican political consultant based in Sacramento, Rob Stutzman. He's former deputy chief of staff to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, let me ask you, first of all, uh, Obviously, Bernie Sanders was going to formally endorse Joe Biden. We knew that. But um, what do you think this says about the enthusiasm with which Sanders is likely to try and motivate his supporters to go to Biden? Well, good morning, Larry. Thank you for having me. This will remain an interesting question to observe in the the weeks ahead. It it was interesting in that uh, when Bernie did endorse uh, Biden today. The Biden also announced that he'll be working with Bernie and "quote unquote" working groups uh, about policy. So it, it it appears that the the Biden campaign is going to be sensitive to trying to find you know strings of progressive policy 
that they can try to attract Bernie's base voters with and to make it look like it's a campaign uh, that is cooperating with with Sanders uh, as well. Is that playing with fire, though, in the general election? Uh, well, in, the, in the, the general election, there's two things that Biden has to do. One is hold his base. First thing you do in a campaign is, is consolidate your base. But then he really does need to reach out into the centrist electorate that elected Democrats to Congress in, in 2018. That's where I think it'll be interesting to see what he does with his VP pick and what that will say about him. Um, I tend to think it's going to be a more moderate pick for that reason. All right. Also with us, Pomona College Associate Professor of Politics, Amanda Hollis-Brusky. She's American politics editor at Monkey Cage, a political science blog at The Washington Post. Professor, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Larry. Your thoughts about the formal endorsement. Uh, Again, we knew it was coming, but what do you think is likely to come behind it? Yeah, I think so much of whether Sanders supporters show up for Biden in November is going to be determined by Sanders himself, his leadership, his signaling to his base. I think Biden adopting part of Sanders' platform, as you mentioning, setting up these working groups, gives Bernie a selling point to his base. Look, we forced the establishment to take account of our revolutionary agenda. But I still think Bernie's going to have to work hard. He's going to work hard to sell it. And he didn't do that for Hillary. Um, so, you know, what the Democratic Party is hoping is that he learns from his mistakes and um, and that his uh, supporters follow suit. And how much does his vice presidential pick factor into this? For example, if he if he leans toward Amy Klobuchar, the Minnesota senator who's more centrist, more aligned politically with Biden, is that going to so turn, you know, Sanders and his supporters off? They're going to stay home. I think that um, that is a risk that Biden runs by picking some a VP who who does tack to the center. Um, I mentioned signaling. I think Biden has to engage in some strong signaling himself. So picking a VP that has more progressive credentials, perhaps a person of color, someone who aligns more politically with the Sanders Warren wing, would go some way towards um, towards boosting that Sanders support. Rob Stetsman, what do you think? Well, I still think that he has to pivot towards the towards the center for general election. I, in fact, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post this weekend laying out the case for for Klobuchar. There is still it, it, the great motivator in the Democrat base that didn't exist four years ago is is to get rid of Donald Trump. So I do think you'll see a good base uh, interaction in voting uh, come November. We know that Biden has strong African-American support within the party. And of course, you know, Barack Obama looms as a as a weapon yet to deploy in all this. So I think, again, I think it'd be wise for him to do something that appeals to the voters that voted for Democrats for, to Congress in the suburbs in 2018 and grow a larger coalition than than what uh, what a progressive Democrat party can deliver. So if, if he chose, let's say, Stacey Abrams from Georgia, you think that that would not help him as much as Senator Klobuchar? Correct. The choice really is a reflection on the judgment of the candidate, right? So if he chooses Stacey Abrams, you know, the judgment on the candidate, I think a lot of Americans would have is that, A, that he's choosing someone far more progressive than what we want to see the government go. And secondly, someone who really doesn't have the experience to be, you know, take the job on day one, which in this instance probably is more critical than it has been given Biden's age. 
and the likelihood that he's only a one-term president if he wins. Yeah. Uh, what What do you think about that, Professor Hollis Brusky? Is does that make it risky for him to choose someone like uh, Stacey Abrams? Yeah. I mean, I I this is um, I'm not a campaign specialist, but my sense is that someone like Stacey Abrams Abrams would energize folks in the Democratic Party who will vote for Joe Biden, will do anything to get Donald Trump out of office, but are not particularly excited about him. So from the perspective of energizing and mobilizing the base, um, I think I think a pick like Stacey Abrams would do that. On the other hand, you do have these electoral considerations and you do have age and experience considerations. So um, it'll be interesting to see where Biden goes with this. We're talking with Pomona College Professor Amanda Hollis-Brusky and Rob Stutzman, Republican political consultant. We're talking about the latest political developments, including, of course, the ongoing tension between public health officials wanting to keep people safer at home for now an extended period of time, uh, particularly seeing the results of hospital admissions not being as as high as had been forecast earlier. Um, But you've got elected officials deeply concerned about the economy, uh, what's going on with joblessness uh, in the country. So a group of Northeastern governors are apparently looking at, well, you know, when can we open the economy? President Trump has been talking about setting up a task force that would try and determine this. Professor Hollis Brusky, you've got an inbuilt tension here trying to serve two masters of the economy and public health. And, um, you know, what is the best way of, you know, finding some sort of, uh, of way to navigate this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and um, a really important problem. Uh, I don't know what open the economy means. Right? So much of what's happening around COVID-19 by design and by necessity is being driven by the states. And so it makes sense that states are taking leadership in this area. I mean, the president himself has no power to wave a wand and mandate that states lift shelter at home orders. What ultimately may end these orders um, is not Trump waving a magic wand or issuing a mandate or even a series of governors, but lawsuits heard by libertarian leaning pro business Trump judges who may well strike these orders down as being overdrawn or overbroad, unduly impacting the economic lives and livelihoods of businesses and business owners. So um, I think you're going to see an increasing amount of litigation as these orders uh, get extended. And I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to add to this mix. We'll hear what Rob Stutzman has to say as we continue. And the question is, will the public uh, not seeing the pandemic hit as hard as earlier projections? If, in fact, this plateau that we're on holds, will there be more clamoring for people wanting to get back to their jobs, wanting to get a paycheck? We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org, back in one minute. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle with Republican political consultant Rob Stutzman and Pomona College associate professor of politics Amanda Hollis Brusky. Uh, she's author, by the way, of a book published about five years ago Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society, and the Conservative Counter Revolution. Rob Stutzman wanted to ask you what I just asked the professor, and that is about uh, this tension between uh, what's uh, the devastation 
recession down to the economy, unemployment, business closures versus efforts to try and uh, flatten the curve of coronavirus spread. And, you know, how is how is this best resolved between governors, the president and public health experts? Well, I think that the president can set a tone, but this this bus is being driven by by governors of both parties. And they'll be making the decisions as to when to reopen their economies. It, the other thing that makes sense is that we have regional differences. Um, I don't think, you know, Wyoming, for instance, I don't believe has had a death. I heard reported this morning. And so they may, you know, they may take a different approach than a densely populated state like California. Uh, but I look, you know, California, Gavin Newsom, who this Republican gives an A plus to for the way he's he's managed this crisis. I mean, the, the stay at home in California is obviously absolutely obliterated any type of, of curve. And so I, it'd be interesting to watch the state this week uh, here at home because Newsom was going to start to decide, I think, can we start to reintroduce more economic activity and, you know, lift some of the stay at home? Because the purpose of stay at home, remember, is not that no one gets the disease, but that we don't exceed the capacity of the healthcare system. And that appears to be well managed at the moment. So I, I do think there's going to be a lot more clamoring um, from the business community. And I, look, the governor's concerned, too. He's got a budget deficit stacking up by the day during this shutdown. Yeah, there's a lot of economic pressure. On the flip side, though, Rob, if they are to lift and say, OK, you know, those who are in less vulnerable groups and younger people, you know, you you go back to work and uh, cases take off again, then how do you, you know, put the genie back in the bottle and reinstitute a, a stay at home for everybody? I think that's, you know, that's the challenge is doing it prematurely. Prematurely or, or, or how do you how do you start to slowly let lift some of this activity? Um, and there, there's probably a variety of ways to consider uh, doing that. Uh, but there's it, it, you're going to get restlessness, I believe, uh, not just with the public, but with. I think leading leaders of business and I think even labor groups that if this remains completely flat uh, for a couple more weeks, that there has to be some expectation you figure out how to start reintroducing economic activity, whether it's safely distanced restaurant activity or safely distanced non-essential retail, which has been completely shut down. But something's going to have to probably start being communicated soon on what the next step looks like. Bobby in Koreatown uh, says, uh, what about as a running mate for Joe Biden, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer? Uh, because Michigan is so important to Biden's candidacy. Professor Hollis Brusky, what do you think about Gretchen Whitmer? Um, I think that pick would be interesting. Um We've obviously seen that uh, Gretchen Whitmer is someone who's gotten under the skin of Donald Trump. Uh, She has become one of his many, many targets. So she's already a national name in that way. Michigan is important. And we know that Joe Biden is strongly considering a woman. So I think it would be an interesting pick for a lot of reasons, not the least of which it would certainly rile up uh, Donald Trump. Uh, We also have Jim in Encino who says, is it possible that Biden would take the unprecedented step of assembling a cabinet before the election? Uh, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times is one of the people that suggested that. Jim thinks it's a brilliant idea. Professor, what do you think? It's interesting. We're in an era of unprecedented moves by political candidates. If you remember 
Um, Then-candidate Donald Trump released a list of potential Supreme Court nominees that he would make. That was the first time that had ever happened, and that seemed to move voters, um, otherwise never Trumpers, over to his side. Could Joe Biden releasing um, a cabinet uh, do the same thing for Democrats? Maybe. Um, Like I said, we're in an era of unprecedented candidate moves, so this could be the next one. All right. Uh, We're talking with Amanda Hollis-Gresky, Pomona College professor, and Rob Stutzman, a Republican political consultant based in Sacramento. Rob, I want to ask you about uh, the president um, letting go two inspector generals and concerns about the oversight of the spending of of the first round of stimulus money. Um, Do you have concerns that there's going to be um, appropriate oversight? Uh, I I do. I have appropriate. I have concerns about appropriate oversight in just about any capacity of the executive branch right now. Look, Congress is going to have to uh, exert itself um, with oversight. Pelosi has announced that there will be a special uh, committee for oversight of the COVID money. I think you know Trump then firing inspector generals may have something to do with him. Uh, you know his counter move in this tussle that will be you know, ever present between he and, and, and Congress, particularly on, on issues of oversight. But, you know, any other time, without the COVID going on, the inspector generals being fired would have been a substantial news, which has yeah. you know, basically gone unnoticed. And it is, it's frankly, uh, I think, a bit chilling uh, how much he does not want to let himself be held accountable in practicing the, the, the norms of government that have been in place, uh, you know, in perpetuity. CNN just polled Americans about the federal government and 55% said they think uh, the feds are doing a poor job of dealing with COVID-19. Rob, real real quickly, your thoughts on that. Um, is, is that a deep cause for concern among supporters of the president? Uh, they should be concerned. I mean, the response has been uneven. There's been a lot, you know, uh, obviously reported and noted about how early they they knew and weren't telling the truth, if you will, about this. Uh, you know, he was he was on record saying this has been contained. So there's not a lot of credibility there. And then there is evidence to suggest that his daily briefings are not serving him well politically. As again, it's been a lot of uneven communication from the president. And that sort of campaign rally, you know, touting how great a job he's done seems to have backfired. Professor, uh, quickly, your your thoughts on that? So one of the things about having a global and globalized media in the era of a global pandemic is that people can compare and contrast what the U.S. is doing with what other countries are doing. It shows them that there are solutions, other ways, perhaps better ways of handling this crisis. And I think that's what you're seeing reflected in those poll numbers. It's Professor Amanda Hollis-Brusky of Pomona College. She's Associate Professor of Politics and Rob Stutzman, Sacramento-based Republican political consultant, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Governor Schwarzenegger. Stay tuned. Coming up next, uh, speaking of state political leaders, Gavin Newsom with his daily new news conference. Uh, We'll be leading right into that. You'll be hearing also what's on Fresh Air with Terry Gross uh, that'll come on after the governor's uh, news conference. And I remind you to join us for Air Talk tonight, a reprise of one of each hour's daily Air Talks at nine o'clock weeknights on KPCC. Have a good day.